Welcome to the One School Podcast. My name is Keevan Bybee. I'm a family physician exploring how we might turn schools into 24-7, 365 safe havens for our children. Today, I've got the honor of speaking with Professor Isaac Prilotensky. I was inspired to reach out to him after reading his book on How People Matter. The concept of meaning and mattering is near and dear to my heart. As social primates, one of our major affordances is meaning-making, which influences how we interact with the world as well as how we interpret our emotions. Thus, I felt compelled to see how an expert in the art and science of meaning-making might illuminate the One School Project of Integrated Wellness. Thank you for joining me today, Isaac, and I would love to hear a little bit of how you came to be talking with me today. Well, I guess you alluded to the book, uh, How People Matter, and a few people have resonated with the idea of mattering, which, in my view, really consists of feeling valued and adding value, making a contribution to the community, to ourselves, to our family, to our work. So... For me, mattering is about feeling valued, like you are recognized, you are appreciated, you are seen and heard as a human being, and having the opportunity to make meaning through contributions to yourself and others. And that's what I guess depicts your interest, and I think there is an intersection We both share an interest in how we can improve outcomes for children and youth and how can we help them feel like they matter and how can we help families and communities. So that's why we're here today, I guess. Indeed, indeed. Um, You know, uh, I remember reading one passage in your book about how... um, you know, teens who are better engaged with their community are, are better engaged with with their academics. There's another thinker that I've really liked listening to. Uh, he goes by, uh, his name is Zachary Stein, and he talks about an educational hub and spoke model where instead of, you know, people being confined to a physical building from eight until three, thinking about how their uh, educational activities can kind of be dispersed within a community. Um, I'm just curious what kind of thoughts you have uh, about something like that. Well, needless to say, schools are a foundational source of maturing and health and well-being for children. The kids spend so much time at school that we need to do whatever we can to make sure that children feel valued for who they are, regardless of challenges that they may experience. We have to make sure that they are given opportunities to contribute in many different ways. Children uh, don't learn the same way, They don't come in cookie-cutter, you know, shapes. Uh, So as we all know, children have very many different talents and assets and strengths. And it's our job as adults to mine their assets. 
and to discover what is it that you are unique at and what is it that you enjoy doing and what gives you meaning. Can it be sports or playing a musical instrument or geography or math or languages or or swimming, whatever that is, that really ignites your passion, that builds on your strengths. So I think that schools are a perfect place for all of us adults, teachers, parents, volunteers, principals, to be creating cultures of mattering and well-being for kids. Now, many kids already have that in great uh, many forms from home. Many kids come from terrific families where parents uh, nurture and nourish their kids and they make them feel loved and appreciated and they have fun with them and they nourish their intellectual curiosity, their social interests, their, their physical outlets. But not all the kids come from families like that. And then that's when compensatory systems come in, especially the school, community centers, um, volunteers, big brothers, big sisters, uh, religious organizations, sporting clubs, where we, the adults, have an opportunity to, to help families who are having a hard time providing the kids uh, with that essential feelings of being valued and loved and having an opportunity to add value in different ways. Yeah, I, I love, love everything that you're saying there. Um, and the specifically the community center aspect of it, thinking about how we can blur the line between schools and community centers um, might be an interesting way to, to move forward. And how everybody is coming to, to life with their own, you know, innate biology, as well as the, the history of their family and the different um, attributes uh, or, you know, lack thereof that we sometimes come with. There's a there's a podcast called Hardcore History. Have you ever heard of that one? With uh, it, it's really good stuff. But he had an episode on children, and he the, a, a framework that I really liked is if you think of what was considered good parenting up until call it 1980 would basically be called child abuse by today's standards. And on some sense, you could think of all of humanity as uh, being raised under some conditions of child abuse and therefore how can we interrupt that cycle with uh better better resources you know i consider uh, conceptually hubbed at at like a school and i know that you've had um a pretty interesting history and how would you say that your experiences living in various parts of the world would influence how learning in different environments can contribute to kids having a sense of meaning and mattering? Well, what I can share with you and the audience is that there are really multiple ways uh, to have meaning 
uh, in childhood and later on in life. So I had the misfortune of losing my parents when I was eight years old in a car accident. Both my parents died and I, I had the good fortune of having a great aunt who adopted me and my two siblings. She was a widow, but she had three kids. We were, the two families were very close. So she went from being a single mom, a widow with three kids to being a single mom with six kids. Um, and she was very, very loving and nurturing. And she protected me and she loved me and she made me feel like I mattered to her um, as a second mother, so to speak. And it, so, so growing up, I had this tragedy, this traumatic event, but that doesn't mean that my fate was sealed, you know, in a negative way forever, because the other people came in, you know, other people stepped in and they provided me what my parents couldn't because they were gone. And I also had the good fortune of having very good friends as a little kid, as an eight-year-old. I was loved by my friends. You know, we used to play soccer together and do homework and engage in mischief together. And I, and I was a good soccer player. So I had other outlets. I wasn't marked, you know, by my tragedy. Of course, it was a very difficult event that accompanied me for many, many years and still does. <laughs> but in a way, I had the good fortune of being surrounded by opportunities to express myself. And I, I attended the youth movement. So in the youth movement, I was able to assume positions of leadership. So I felt good about myself. You know, I was contributing. I was a young leader of younger kids. Eventually, a group of us coalesced together that was in Argentina. And we moved to Israel together. And we moved to a boarding school. So... Talk about the 24-7 school, right? That's what boarding schools are. And my last two years of high school were in boarding school. And for me, they were heaven. Uh, I have to say, in Argentina, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Jews were being persecuted. Um, and it was just plain dangerous for young Jewish people like me who opposed the dictatorship. Um, to be, you know, socially conscious and politically active. You know, think about to Ukraine today, okay? So I grew up in Argentina where there was a fascist dictatorship. Um, so we had to flee. We witnessed today many people fleeing, millions of people fleeing the Ukraine. There were, over the years, many, many Jewish people who had to flee their countries because of anti-Semitism. So I, I was one of them. Uh, but I, I landed in a good place. I landed in a boarding school. The state of Israel provided all the refugees. I was one of them. Uh, with a free education. 
courtesy of the state of Israel in my last two years really were great because I escaped a dangerous situation and I landed in a safe situation. And there were very many young leaders and teachers in my boarding school, this amazing 24-7 school that enabled me to study and flourish and get ready for university and do sports. Um, so just a little bit about me saying that a tragedy and trauma doesn't have to mark kids for life. For as long as there are good substitutes and other systems and, and loving people who can still focus on your strengths. Um, and, and in my case, you know, I was a good young leader, you know, so, and I, I guess I was empathetic um, and I had the good social skills. So some people saw that in me and they gave me opportunities um, to work with younger kids. Uh, and I always loved soccer, so I was a good soccer player, and, and I just found other outlets. And all kids need an opportunity uh, to express their talents. It's our job to find what they love, what they are good at, right? It's our job as adults to mind that. Very much so. Uh, you know, the, the term uh, IEP or individu Individualized Education Plan certainly has a specific connotation in, in the United States education system, but I, I would really love to get to a place where we give each kid the education that they need based on where they're at and where they're coming from. Uh, in your book, you talk a lot, uh, at least in one section, about emotional vocabulary. And, you know, I'd like to at least when I grew up, I certainly didn't get much education on naming what's going on with my internal process. And so, you know, I'd love to think about how you would like to see emotional education integrated into formal education. This is absolutely essential. Nowadays, it goes by the name of social emotional learning, you know, SCL. It is extremely important to help kids label their emotions, understand what's going on inside, and labeling their emotions, being aware of what's going on inside, is really the first step in coping effectively. Because if you don't know what's happening with you, and you, it's, it's all just a big turmoil, psychological turmoil, and you don't even know what to call it, it's all very confusing. So the more we incorporate social emotional learning into kids' education, eh, the higher their mental health and well-being will be. Um, as, as we all know, kids interact a lot. Eh, social dynamics are a huge part of growing up. And we have to help kids uh, resolve conflicts um, and express empathy and be there when a friend is suffering and celebrate the friend when they are achieving something good. Uh, it's, it's not good enough just to lend the shoulder when your friend is going through a rough time. We also have to cheer them on when they're having a good time. 
right? We have to celebrate their, their accomplishments. And there is a lot of research showing that social emotional learning has a very powerful impact on academic learning. So the more we learn how to cope with our emotions, the more we can self-regulate, the more we can focus and settle on cognitive learning, academic enterprise. Um, so there are multiple, multiple benefits of social emotional learning. And you're right that in years past, parents didn't have the vocabulary, the knowledge, the psychological insight to help their kids deal with difficult emotions, right? Um, many of us grew up thinking that you shouldn't be crying, you shouldn't be expressing your emotions, especially if you're a boy, boys don't cry. And boy, did I hear that a lot after my parents died. You know, like, you shouldn't be crying, you should be tough. You know, all that the anti-psychological uh, approaches of the past. But we know so much more today. Uh, we just need to deploy what we know. Yeah, there's there's absolutely cause for optimism. I uh, I, I envy the exposure my children are getting. My wife happens to be a, a therapist as well, and they are so good at naming their emotions and setting boundaries for themselves. And you know, I just wish that for 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 more and more kids. You know, and speaking of you know our emotional vocabulary, you know, we're a, a storytelling species. And, you know, how do you think about, like, the, the, the stories we tell both about ourselves and about our relationships and how that affects how we matter or, or, or how does that affect how we generate meaning with people? Well, it, stories are meaning-making, right? We, we seek coherence as human beings, and we create coherence through the stories we tell, so it's really important to cultivate storytelling in kids. And, you know, there are two fundamental stories kids can tell about themselves, you know, a positive story or a negative story, right? A, a, a negative story is, I'm no good, a, I can't succeed at this, Kids don't like me, I fail a test. And basically, a negative narrative eventually becomes internalized. It's not just a story, but it's who I am. I'm not a good person. And kids don't just invent these stories. They, they absorb messages from the environment that teachers, parents, siblings, cousins, priests, rabbis, imams, that we, we all contribute to these stories. So it's extremely important that we mind the stories we tell our kids um, because kids are huge internalizers. And in the absence of a counter vocabulary, you know, if adults tell you often that you're no good, you begin to believe it as a kid. So, so, so that's a negative narrative. What's, what's, a, what's a positive narrative? 
a narrative that says, I am good at things, I am lovable, I'm a good friend, I have good qualities, and I can help others. Um, it's, it's, all, it's always important to remember that a, a positive narrative about yourself is not just about, I'm great, because that can lead to narcissism, you know? Uh, we, we want kids to feel positive about themsel- themselves, but we also want them to contribute to others. Uh, we really want them to have self-compassion so that they are not harsh on themselves, you know, if they fail a test or if something is not going great or if they are not picked for the baseball team or whatever a bad event can happen. We want them to have self-compassion, but we also want them to have compassion for other people. And that is a very important balancing act. And nowadays, I think we live in a culture with multiple risks. One risk is that we cultivate self-centered kids. Uh, that's one important risk. The other risk is that if you're not doing well, uh, we tend to blame kids for not doing well. So these messages either promote narcissism or depression, right? You either internalize messages that you're not good or you internalize messages that you are the king of the class. The king or the queen? It, well, neither extreme is good. It, so we really have to cultivate in kids the ability to nurture themselves and nurture others at the same time. That's a very important balance. So in the language of mattering, this is reflected in the fact that a lot of people grow up thinking, I have the right to feel valued and to be loved. That is 100% correct about 50% of the problem. You know, the other 50% is that we all have the right to feel valued and be loved. And I have something to do about your feeling valued. I have to help others feel valued. So I have to come up with a balancing act between feeling valued and adding value. So the stories we tell, the stories we want our kids to tell about themselves is, I am valued and I am helpful. I am lovable and I love. I get and I give. I receive and I provide love. Yeah, and you you provide a beautiful visual. Your your circle of mattering, like you mentioned, we at the same time we need to like feel value and add value, and being able to kind of go around this circle instead of get stuck on one side. You know, most most commonly in Western culture, the 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 ego side rather than the uh, the community side. So 
yeah, when I saw your wheel of mattering, it, it really struck a chord with me because you need to keep going around the circle uh, and not be stuck or calcified into any one position. I'm just curious where, what your inspiration was for the wheel or how you decided to put it together. Well, I think that I'm, I'm a visual learner. You know, we were talking about how people learn in different ways. And I, I am very visual. And, and I pride myself in simplifying complex ideas. So I thought this visual of feeling value and adding value is a good metaphor. This wheel, you know, if you feel valued, you are going to take more risks and you're going to be willing to add value at work, you know, or, or in, your, in the classroom, you're going to raise your hand because you feel confident. And if you feel confident, you want to be the leader of the group or you want to answer the math question or you want to take a lead in the science project. So, and the more you take risks, the more you add value to the team, the more you feel valued. So for me, this idea of a dynamic interaction between feeling valued and adding value adds value. <laughs> and I... so. I, I have seen part of my job in translating psychology for the general public really as a job of making psychology accessible. And this book that you're referring to, How People Matter, has been an effort to speak in plain language that everyone, everyone can understand about deep things. Um, because nothing could be deeper than meaning and mattering, really. Uh, but we, we, have to, we have to talk about these things in ways that everybody can understand. Agreed, agreed. The, what, what, I, what I particularly appreciated about your book was it you know, offered practical examples or you know, a, a practice of, of meaning-making which actually kind of ties into uh, another thing, rather than slowly coming around to the, the idea that, you know, meaning isn't something that's out there. It's something that is generated or even better co-generated. Uh, and then, so what do you think about the process? What, how do you think about the practice of meaning making rather than finding a specific meaning? That's a great point. Um, and I say that meaning is in the making. So the making is the process. And I, I doubt that people find meaning without effort. And by effort, I mean uh, the process of discovering what is it that gives you meaning? So, for example, for some people, it may be writing or playing an instrument or being a good friend or being a good parent, um, volunteering in the community or religious faith. 
there are a thousand ways to find meaning. But I really, I really doubt that meaning is just found without going through an effort to engage in something that may be costly, may be effortful, but you derive pleasure in doing so, right? It, it's, I guess it's the opposite of taking a drug, right? Some people may take drugs for instant gratification, right? Uh, that doesn't give you meaning. That, that's hedonism, right? You may get an immediate pleasure kick. But pleasure is not the same as purpose, right? We, we have to say that happiness is part pleasure and part purpose. So, um, you, you know, if you were injected to a drug, you know, like if you had an intravenous and you had a drip all day long, you know, you may be really experiencing a lot of pleasure. But I'm not sure you want to live that life, right? I'm not sure that you just want to be a pleasure machine without a purpose machine. Okay, so I, I can just give you a simple example. Uh, our son is a chess player and a chess coach. And uh, in school, um, school wasn't, you know, a big passion for him, but chess was. Um, and he started playing chess, I think, when he was seven years old, he's 35 today, and he's always played chess, and he made a career out of it, and he coaches kids, and his, his students win national and international tournaments, uh, and he has a great, a very successful chess academy, and he himself is a very strong chess player, and he derives meaning from the learning and the process, and it's effortful. You know, if you if you know how to play chess, you know how difficult it is, right? And you know how difficult it is to achieve high levels of accomplishment, but you enjoy the process because you are learning, and, and it's effortful. It, the same happens with flow. You know, my chicks sent me high, developed this idea of flow, engagement, when you're engaged with an activity that you like, well, it has to be challenging. Because if it's not challenging, if it's really easy, eh, you know, you don't really eh, enjoy the activity that much, it becomes boring. So there is now a, an interesting uh, new book. It's called The Sweet Spot about the benefits of suffering in meaning. And it's not just suffering for suffering's sake, but it's the process of finding what you're good at. And you have to try different things. You know, it's like when kids go to college, they go through this moratorium period that Eric Erickson coined this term moratorium, which means you are in suspended time, uh, meaning you cannot really make up your mind whether you want to be a biologist or whether you want to be a psychologist or whether you want to be a political scientist or an economist. So moratorium is this period of time where you suspend 
big decisions and you search, you search for what is it that I'm, what is it that speaks to me? What is it that I really love doing? What's, how am I going to meld, blend my passion with my purpose in life? And all of that is part of meaning making. And it comes in very many different ways. As I said, you can volunteer in the community, you can be a humanitarian aid worker, you can be a politician or a violinist or a great mathematician or the greatest soccer player. I think we have to allow kids to explore what is it that calls their attention, their passion, their engagement. Exactly. Like I was just kind of wrapped listening to you and thinking about what would it take for, you know, your average local school to be that that platform that meets your, you know, first layer of Maslow's hierarchy so that you are able to be in the exploration while feeling safe enough to to try because you know that you've got that safety net to fall back on without the failure being catastrophic, which even when you're eight, all failures seem catastrophic. And, and, and so being able to cultivate that, um, the, that environment for children to jump and be caught. Um, and so, yeah, I just really like that. And your, the story of your son, right? You know, you, somebody at seven, you say they're going to be a professional chess player. You're like, sure. But then if you let him explore, you know, it's not that he's I, I, maybe he's winning money at tournaments. But more than that is he is teaching other people and he's an, a, a professional chess player because he had the opportunity to explore how to do that in a creative way. Right. Exactly. And I think it's our responsibility as adults in to let kids try different things. And as you said, if they fall, we'll catch them, you know? And this is, this is what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. So as opposed to a fixed mindset, right? A fixed mindset says, I'm either good or bad at things. Um, and if I fail, that's it, I'm not going to try it again because I'm bad at this, forget it. That's a fixed mindset. A growth mindset says, I enjoy the process of learning. And, and if I fail at something, I'm going to look at what have I learned from this? And it, what can I do to improve? What can I do to overcome challenges? And I think I think that I have a growth mindset. You know, I think my son has one too. <laughs> a, and not everything I've tried in life has succeeded, a, but I, I try not to be too harsh on myself. I guess people gave me enough positive messages when I was growing up to feel like um, I can be kind to myself. So that's the message I try to share with my students at the university, with the people I work with in the community, that we need to be, we need to be kind to ourselves and, and we need to challenge the narratives that want us to internalize failure. 
And we have to be very mindful. You know, in our society, we live in such an individualistic culture that when many people, unfortunately, don't do well, the default is they blame themselves. Right? Because the narrative is, if you succeed, you succeed because you are great. And if you fail, you fail because you are incompetent. You're either incompetent or lazy, right? You know, pick your poison, right? You're either incompetent or lazy, neither of which is a very appealing uh, story to tell yourself. Uh, And what we don't do well in society is pay attention to all the environmental influences that bolster those of us who are lucky to be doing well, to have a steady job and good relationships and, and, you know, enough of the Maslow basic needs covered. Uh, So society tends to really celebrate self-made people as if there are self-made people. Nobody is self-made. Nobody is self-made, right? All of us have had support from caring others and caring systems. Um, So it's our responsibility to, to share narratives with kids that say your well-being has a lot to do with your environment. So it's our responsibility to share with them an understanding that they shouldn't blame themselves if things don't go well. Just like we tell kids, don't blame yourself because your parents are getting a divorce, right? A lot of kids tend to internalize, oh, I wasn't good enough, you know? My parents are getting a divorce because of me. Uh, You know this well. Kids tend to internalize a lot of problems. Uh, Well, it's an adult's problem. It's not a kid's problem that they're getting a divorce, right? Um, And so we need to challenge this individualistic culture that, first of all, you know, hey, if I'm at the receiving end of praise, I'll take it, right? Like all of us think, oh, yeah, they're saying, Isaac, Kevin, you're great. You, and you, you lap it up, right? They say, oh, yeah, fantastic. But we have to remember that none of us are self-made. And that's the discourse we have to share with kids. Uh, you know, we have a responsibility to ourselves and others to do our best, to become resilient to make meaning, to be good students, you know, it's a responsibility to try to do well. But when we fail, we shouldn't just blame kids for their misfortune. We need to have this language um, that says, you can grow out of it. You know, we should all embrace a growth mindset and we should eschew these courses of fixed mindset. 100%. Um, Yeah, like speaking of growth and thinking about um, human development, like on a neurophysiologic uh, level, uh, we all hate insurance companies, but if we look at uh, driver's license or uh, car insurance actuarials, you know, there's a reason like most men's car insurance drops off at the age of 
25, right? There's a period of myelination and frontal lobe engagement that comes online. And um, thinking about how largely historically we were expected to be self-sufficient at 18 for some arbitrary reason, but recognizing that there's still a lot of myelination that happens after that. And, you know, not that we're fixed at 18 even or or 28 or whatever the number is. Yeah, I just really, I I think that kind of tied in with what you were saying, staying in the growth mindset, you know, beyond any arbitrary number, you know, and we can have periods uh, that reflect what we are neurologically, individually and on, and on, on average, you were touching on so many things that I want to pull threads on. I don't even know which one to go with next. But uh, yeah, the the me culture versus the we culture, thinking about how ego in one sense is a great survival tool. You know, if we don't think about how we could take responsibility for how we influence the world, then we won't act. But at the same time, if it's overemphasized, then we're going to end up trying to take responsibility for things that are environmental and that can lead to, like you said, uh, an inappropriate sense of depression or ownership over things that you didn't have control over. You know, like it's the soup we live in or that joke about the two fish swimming along and the old fish says, how's the water? You know, what's water? You're talking about how the, the narrative of me is the water in which we live and we don't even recognize it at times. I, I agree completely. And I think in what, what a lot of families and teachers do, they create a counterculture. Uh, not in any subversive sort of way, you know, but a counterculture that is healthy. Uh, because it's a counterculture that says, some of the values you absorb from the environment are not very healthy. So here at home, at school, maybe in church or in the youth movement, we're going to offer you good values, right? And let's face it, kids are exposed to very many negative values. You know, uh, advertisers know exactly how to manipulate kids into a consumer machine, you know, how to make kids consumer machines, how to nag their parents, um, how to become just an object of marketing, right? So in our house, for example, raising our kids, we didn't allow any any toy guns. Uh, it was hard, you know, because all kids want to have this plastic toy or whatever it is, the latest gadget. And um, we, we didn't even allow him to watch Ninja Turtles because it was a very violent. I don't know if you remember Ninja Turtles from growing up. Certainly do. Uh, but Ninja Turtles, you know, it's a very violent. It was a very violent. A TV show and and it was hard to create a mini counterculture, right? Saying no, we don't allow these things because they promote negative behaviors, and we don't allow aggressive behavior, and you have to be kind. Um, and and I just think that all of us need to be doing some of that counterculture. We need to be aware. What are the values my kids is exposed to? 
and what values I really want to inculcate. And all the parents have a hard time counteracting that all-encompassing consumerist, market-driven culture that gets that the kids absorb through TV and, the, and social media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't want to make light of the job that parents and teachers have because we have a formidable enemy: social media, consumerism, advertisers, very sophisticated marketing ploys. So in a sense, we're engaging in a, in a culture, you know, um, I don't want to use the word culture war because... Pretty loaded these days. Yeah, it's very loaded. But yeah, but in a sense, we're fighting different values. The sci-fi optimist in me is frustrated because we could conceivably use that same technology to go, this is what kind of learner you are and... Here is the educational material that would help you thrive, but instead we're taking that technology to tell you how you are insufficient without this thing that you've got to spend a hundred dollars on. Not, not, not only that, but if you think about social media, the message is plain and simple: you are insufficient. Period. You're not good enough. Because comparing yourself to all these celebrities, I call this celebritism. You know, all these people that young folks compare themselves to in social media, you're, you always end up short, right? Because you can never be beautiful enough, popular enough, smart enough, wealthy enough, like all those people in social media. Um, that's another big battle for us parents, adults, teachers. Uh, how do we contain the very undermining messages from the media that you're basically worthless? Because if you're not famous, you're nobody. That's a very that's a very big fight that a lot of parents and teachers have in their hands. Well, but in some sense, it comes back to mattering. And if we offer our offer each other and especially our young ones an opportunity to add value back to their community in a real visceral face to face way, that in, is the immune system to combat the, the super stimuli of, of social media, right? Exactly. So we, we really need to be aware of what other opportunities are out there for kids to be engaged in help, helpful behaviors. I could keep pulling threads on stuff that you've said and in your book, I will encourage people to, to pick it up. It's a, it's a relatively quick read and, and easy to consume, um, how people matter. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time and just ask, is there any other uh, resources or thoughts that you'd like to plug or anything you'd like to share with us before I let you get on with your evening? No, thank you for the opportunity. I guess the book has many resources. And as you said, we wrote it in a very uh, practical way. So there are many tips and tools for teachers, parents, uh, business leaders, organizations, community developers 
just want to say that we organize the book according to different levels, the personal, the relational, the organizational, the community, because we all live in context, right? We didn't just want to write a book about personal experiences of mattering, but we talked about relational mattering, organizational mattering, and community mattering. So it's all one big sphere of influence. Uh, and I love how you said we, because it was it was co-authored, correct? Yes, absolutely. It was co-authored with my lovely wife of almost 40 years, Dr. Ora Prilalpensky. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll hopefully, maybe we'll find an opportunity to say hi again sometime in the future. 